Chapter 26 of Memories and Adventures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice. Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 26 The Eve of War. The Prologue of Armageddon. The Prince Henry Race. Bernardi, England and the next war, Danger, General Sir H. Wilson, The Channel Tunnel, Naval Defects, Rubber Collars, Mines, Willie Redmond. For a long time I never seriously believed in the German menace. Frequently I found myself alone in a company of educated Englishmen, in my opinion that it was non-existent or at worst greatly exaggerated. This conclusion was formed on two grounds. The first was that I knew it to be impossible that we could attack Germany, save in the face of monstrous provocation. By the conditions of our government, even if those in high places desired to do such a thing, it was utterly impracticable. For a foreign war could not be successfully carried on by Great Britain, unless the overwhelming majority of the people approved of it. Our foreign, like our home, politics are governed by the vote of the proletariat, it would be impossible to wage an aggressive war against any power if the public were not convinced of its justice and necessity. For this reason we could not attack Germany. On the other hand, it seemed to be equally unthinkable that Germany should attack us. One failed to see what she could possibly hope to gain by such a proceeding. She had enemies already upon her eastern and western frontiers, and it was surely unlikely that she would go out of her way to pick a quarrel with the powerful British Empire. If she made war and lost it, her commerce would be set back and her rising colonial empire destroyed. If she won it, it was difficult to see where she could hope for the spoils. We could not give her greater facilities for trade than she had already. We could not give her habitable white colonies, for she would find it impossible to take possession of them in the face of the opposition of the inhabitants, an indemnity she could never force from us. Some coaling stations and possibly some tropical colonies, of which latter she already possessed abundance, were the most that she could hope for. Would such a prize as that be worth the risk attending such a war? To me it seemed that there could only be one answer to such a question. I am still of the same opinion. But unhappily the affairs of nations are not always regulated by reason, and occasionally a country may be afflicted by a madness which sets all calculations at defiance. Then again, I had looked upon the matter too much, as between Great Britain and Germany. I had not sufficiently considered the chance of our being drawn in, against our will, in order to safeguard Belgium, or in order to stop the annihilation of France. It was so perfectly clear that Britain, by her treaty obligations, and by all that is human and honourable, would fight if Belgium were invaded, that one could not conceive Germany taking such a step with any other expectation. And yet, what we could not conceive is exactly what happened, for it is clear that the delusions as to our degeneration in character had really persuaded the Germans that the big cowardly fellow would stand by with folded arms and see his little friend knocked about by the bully. The whole idea showed an extraordinary ignorance of the British psychology, 
but absurd as it was, it was nonetheless the determining influence at the critical moment of the world's history. The influence of the lie is one of the strangest problems of life. That which is not continually influences that which is. Within one generation, imagination and misrepresentation have destroyed the Boer republics and imperial Germany. One of my most remarkable pre-war experiences, which influenced my mind deeply, was my participation in the amateur motor race, called the Prince Henry Competition. It was rather a reliability test than a race, for the car had to go some 150 miles a day, on an average, at its own pace. But marks were taken off for all involuntary stoppages, breakdowns, accidents, etc. Each owner had to drive his own car, and I had entered my little 16-horsepower Landaulet. There were about 40 British cars and 50 German, so that the procession was a very considerable one. Starting from Homburg, the watering place, our route ran through North Germany, then by steamer to Southampton, up to Edinburgh, and back to London by devious ways. The competition had been planned in Germany, and there can be no doubt in looking back that a political purpose underlay it. The idea was to create a false entente by means of sport, which would react upon the very serious political development in the wind, namely the occupation of Agadir on the southwest coast of Morocco, which occurred on our second day out. As Prince Henry, who organised and took part in the competition, was also head of the German navy, it is of course obvious that he knew that the panther was going to Agadir, and that there was a direct connection between the two events, in each of which he was a leading actor. It was a clumsy bit of stage management, and could not possibly have been effective. The peculiarity of the tour was that each car had an officer of the army or navy of the other nation as a passenger to check the marks. Thus my wife and I had the enforced company for nearly three weeks of Count Karma, Rittmeister of Breslau Curassiers, who began by being stiff and inhuman, but speedily thawed and became a very good fellow. The arrangements were very peculiar. Some British paper, the mail, if I remember right, had stated that the competition was really a device to pass a number of German officers through Great Britain to spy out the land. I think there may have been some truth in this, as our good count, when we reached London, went off to a hotel down in the East End, which seemed a curious thing for a wealthy Junker to do. This criticism seems to have annoyed the Kaiser, and he said, or so it was reported, that none but junior officers should go as observers. I should think that ours was the senior of the lot, and the others were mostly captains and lieutenants. On the other hand, the British government, out of compliment to Prince Henry, had appointed the very best men available as observers. If there had been a sudden crisis over Agadir, and Germany had impounded us all, it would have been a national disaster, and would have made a difference in a European war. Speaking from an imperfect memory, I can recall that we had General Grierson, Charles Monroe, Rawlinson, I think Captain, now General, Swinton, of Tanks fame, Delm Ratcliffe, Colonel, now General, Holman, Major, now General, Thwaites, and many other notables, both of the Army and Navy. From the first, relations were strained. There was natural annoyance when these senior officers found that their opposite numbers were youngsters of no experience. Then, again, at Cologne and Munster, I understand that the German military did not show the proper courtesies, and certainly the hospitality which the whole party received until we reached England was negligible. 
the Germans themselves must have felt ashamed of the difference. Personally, the competitors were not a bad set of fellows, though there were some bounders among them. We were not all above criticism ourselves. Of the competition itself, little need be said, as I have treated the sporting side of it elsewhere. Some of the Germans seemed to me to be a little mad, for they seemed consumed by the idea that it was a race, whereas it mattered nothing who was at the head of the procession or who at the tail, so long as you did the allotted distance in the allotted time. I saw a German bound into his car after some stoppage. How many ahead? Three Englishmen? Forwards, forwards, he cried. They barged into each other, dashed furiously round corners, and altogether behaved in a wild fashion, while our sedate old fellows pursued their course in a humdrum fashion and saved their marks. There were, however, some good fellows among the Germans. I have not forgotten how one of them, anonymously, used to place flowers in my wife's corner every morning. But as an attempt at an entente, it was a great failure. The British officer who was compelled to spend weeks with a carload of Germans was not expansive and refused to be digested. Some of the Germans, too, became disagreeable. I saw a large German car. They were all Benz and Mercedes, generally 70 to 80 horsepower, edge a little British car right off the road, onto the grass track beside it. The driver of the British car was a pretty useful middleweight boxer, but he kept his temper, or there might have been trouble. There was very little love lost on either side, though I, as one of the few German-speaking competitors, did my very best to bring about a more cordial atmosphere. But war was in the air. Both sides spoke of it. Several of the British officers were either of the intelligence branch or had special German experience. They were unanimous about it. My attempts towards peace were rejected. The only thing I want to do with these people is to fight them, said Colonel Holman. Same here, said the officer with him. It was a deep antagonism on either side. They were not only sure of the war, but of the date. It will be on the first pretext after the Kiel Canal is widened. The Kiel Canal was finished in June 1914, and war came in August, so that they were not far wrong. There was some little German chaff on the subject. Wouldn't you like one of these little islands? I heard a German say as we steamed out past Heligoland and the Frisian Belt. It was this experience which first made me take the threat of war seriously, but I could have persuaded myself that I was misled, had it not been that I read soon afterwards Bernardi's book, Germany and the Next War. I studied it carefully, and I put my impression of it into print in an article called England and the Next War, which appeared in the fortnightly review in the summer of 1913. It lies before me now as I write, and it is interesting to see how, as I projected my mind and my imagination over the possibilities of the future, I read much aright and some little wrong. I began by epitomising Bernardi's whole argument and showing that however we might disagree with it, we were bound to take it seriously, since he was undoubtedly a leader of a certain class of thought in his own country, that very military class which was now predominant. I demurred at his assumption that the German army in equal numbers must overcome the French. It is possible, I remark, that even so high an authority as General Bernardi has not entirely appreciated how Germany has been the teacher of the world in military matters and how thoroughly her pupils have responded to that teaching. That attention to detail, perfection of arrangement for mobilisation and careful preparation, which have won Germany victories in the past, may now be turned against her. 
and she may find that others can equal her in her own virtues. I then examined Bernardi's alleged grievances against Great Britain and showed how baseless they were and how little they could hope to gain by victory. I quoted one poisonous sentence. Even English attempts at a rapprochement must not blind us to the real situation. We may at most use them to delay the necessary and inevitable war until we may fairly imagine that we have some prospect of success. This last sentence, I remarked, must come home to some of us who have worked in the past for a better feeling between the two countries. I then gave an epitome of Bernardi's plan of campaign as outlined in charming frankness in his volume, and I sketched out how far we were in a position to meet it and what were the joints in our armour. My general conclusions may be given as follows. 1. That invasion was not a serious danger and that the thought of it should not deflect our plans. 2. That if invasion becomes impossible, then any force like the territorials, unless it is prepared to go abroad, becomes useless. 3. That we should not have conscription, save as a very last resource, since it is against the traditions of our people. 4. That our real danger lay in the submarine and in the airship, which could not be affected by blockade. In discussing the submarine, I said, what exact effect a swarm of submarines lying off the mouth of the Channel and the Irish Sea would produce upon the victualling of these islands is a problem which is beyond my conjecture. Other ships besides the British would be likely to be destroyed, and international complications would probably follow. I cannot imagine that such a fleet would entirely, or even to a very large extent, cut off our supplies, but it is certain that they would have the effect of considerably raising the price of whatever did reach us. Therefore we should suffer privation, though not necessarily such privation as would compel us to make terms. From the beginning of the war every home source would naturally be encouraged, and it is possible that before our external supplies were seriously decreased, our internal ones might be well on the way to make up the deficiency. This did, I think, roughly outline the actual course of events. 5. That the submarines would affect military operations should we send a force to France or Belgium. 6. That therefore the Channel Tunnel was a vital necessity. 7. That all unnecessary expenses should be at once cut down so that British credit should stand at its highest when the strain came. These are only the general conclusions. The article attracted some attention, but I do not suppose that it had any actual influence upon the course of events. To reinforce it, I wrote an imaginary episode called Danger in the Strand magazine to show how even a small power might possibly bring us to our knees by the submarine. It was singularly prophetic, for not only did it outline the actual situation as it finally developed, but it contained many details. The zigzagging of the merchant ships, the use of submarine guns, the lying for the night on sandy bottoms and so forth, exactly as they occurred. The article was sent around in proof to a number of high naval officers, mostly retired, for their opinions. I am afraid that the printed results, which I will not be so cruel as to quote, show that it was as well they were retired, since they had no sense of the possibilities of the naval warfare of the future. One result of my fortnightly article was that General Henry Wilson, late chief of the Staff College, as he then was, desired to see me to cross-question me, and a meeting was arranged at the house of Colonel Sackville West, Major Swinton being also present. There, after luncheon, 
General Wilson machine-gunned me with questions for about an hour. He was fierce and explosive in his manner, and looked upon me, no doubt, as one of those pestilential laymen who insist upon talking of things they don't understand. As I could give reasons for my beliefs, I refused to be squashed, and when the interview was over, I went straight down to the Athenaeum Club and wrote it all down from memory. It makes such curious reading that I give it exactly as I reported it that day, in dialogue with one or two comments from Colonel Sackville West. After saying with some asperity that I had made many statements which I could not substantiate, and so might give the public far too optimistic a view of the position, he said, Why do you say that we would never pay an indemnity to Germany? A.C.D. It is a matter of individual opinion. I go upon history and upon the spirit of our people. Gen. W. Had not France equal spirit in 1870? How is it that they paid an indemnity? A.C.D. Because Germany was sitting on top of them, and she had to pay to get from under. Gen. W. Why may she not sit on top of us? A.C.D. Because we live on an island, and she cannot occupy us in the same way. Colonel S.W. I believe a little pressure on London would cause us to pay an indemnity. A.C.D. The man who suggested it would get hanged. Colonel S.W. They would hang the man who made the war. A.C.D. No, they would back him, but hang the traitor. Gen. W. You say that they would gain nothing by war. What about the carrying trade of the world? A.C.D. The carrying trade depends on economic questions and upon geographical situation. For example, the Norwegians, who have no fleet, are one of the principal carriers. Gen. W. At least they could starve us out if they held the seas. A.C.D. Well, that is where my tunnel would come in, but of course I am entirely with you as to the need of holding the seas. Gen. W. Well, now you admit that we must go to the help of France? Certainly. Gen. W. But what can six divisions do? A.C.D. Well, my point is that six divisions with a tunnel are better than six divisions without a tunnel. Colonel S.W. If we have a tunnel, we must have a force worth sending to send through it. A.C.D. If you are going to couple the tunnel with compulsory service, you will get neither one nor the other. Gen. W. I think so far as submarines go, that the British patrols would make it a very desperate service. Some desperate man might get his boat through. A.C.D. Some desperate man might command a flotilla and get it through. Gen. W. Many things seem possible theoretically which cannot be done in practice, but no doubt there is a danger there. In your view, the territorials are simply a support for the fighting army? A.C.D. Yes. Gen. W. But they are too untrained to go into action. A.C.D. They would be reserves and have time to train. Gen. W. Your idea of troops coming back in case of a raid through the tunnel is impossible. You could not withdraw troops in that way from their positions. A.C.D. Well, with all respect, I do not believe either in a raid or in an invasion. Gen. W. A war with Germany would be short and sharp. Seven months would see it finished. A.C.D. You mean, no doubt, the continental part. I could imagine the naval part lasting ten years. Colonel S.W. If your fleet was crushed, you would have to give in. A.C.D. A fleet can never be annihilated as an army is. There always remain scattered forces which can go on fighting. 
I don't think we need give in because the fleet is crushed. Gen W. You don't suppose that the Englishman is a better soldier by nature than the Frenchman or the German? ACD. At least he is a volunteer. Gen W. How would that affect the matter? ACD. I think he would rally better if he were beaten. There would be no end to his resistance, like the North in the American War. Gen W. Don't you think, if war were declared with Germany, that the public, fearing an invasion, would clamour against any regular troops going abroad at all? ACD. I think the public would leave it to the War Office. In the South African War, they allowed our troops to go 6,000 miles away, and yet there was a danger of a European coalition. Colonel S.W. But our Navy was supreme then. A.C.D. Not against a coalition. Gen W. When Cervera's fleet got loose, the Americans would not allow their troops to embark. Colonel S.W. Even the Pacific coast was terrified. A.C.D. Well, surely that is the reductio ad absurdum. Colonel S.W. Still, the fact remains. Gen W. If we could send fifteen divisions, we could stop a war. ACD. But that means compulsory service. Gen W. Why not? ACD. Because I am convinced that you could not get it. I have twice stood for Parliament, and I am sure no candidate would have a chance on such a platform. Gen W. Our descendants will say, Well, you saw the danger, and yet you made no effort. ACD. Well, we have doubled our estimates. Surely that is an effort, and must represent power somewhere. We parted quite good friends, but the General's evident desire to rope me in as a compulsory service man was vain. I venture to think that Lord Roberts's efforts in that direction were a great mistake, and that if he had devoted the same great energy to the line of least resistance, which was the territorial force, we could have had half a million in the ranks when war broke out. From the time that I was convinced by my experiences at the Prince Henry race, and by carefully reading German literature that a war was really brewing, I naturally began to speculate as to the methods of attack and of defence. I have an occasional power of premonition, psychic rather than intellectual, which exercises itself beyond my own control, and which, when it really comes, is never mistaken. The danger seems to be that my own prejudice or reasonings may interfere with it, on this occasion I saw as clearly as possible what the course of a naval war between England and Germany would be. I had no doubt at all that our greatest danger, a desperately real one, was that they would use their submarines in order to sink our food ships, and that we might be starved into submission. Even if we won every fleet action, this unseen enemy would surely bring us to our knees. It all worked out in exact detail in my mind, so much so that Admiral Capel mentioned my name afterwards in the Reichstag and said that only I had accurately seen the economic form which the war would assume. This was perhaps true, so far as the economic side went, but Sir Percy Scott had spoken with far more authority than I on the growing power of the submarines in warfare. I was made very uneasy by this line of thought, and all the more so because I asked several naval officers for some reassurance and could get none. One of them, I remember, said that it was all right because we should put a boom across the channel, which seemed to me like saying that you could keep eels from going down a river by laying a plank across it. Among others I spoke to, Captain Beatty, as he then was, whom I met at a weekend party at Knoll, and though he could give me no reassurance about submarines, he impressed me by his vivid and alert personality, 
and I felt that a navy with such men in command was safe enough where fighting was concerned. It could not, however, fill the platter if there was no loaf to place upon it. I pondered the matter and could only see three palliatives, and no cure. The first was to encourage home growth by a bonus, or by a tariff, but here our accursed party politics barred the way, as I had learned only too clearly after spending a thousand pounds fighting the Hoyk boroughs in order to get some form of agricultural protection. The second was to meet submarines by submarine food carriers. I think that this may prove the final solution, but the ships were not yet planned, far less launched. The third and most obvious was the Channel Tunnel, or tunnels for preference. I had supported this scheme for years, and felt that as a nation we had made fools of ourselves over it, exactly as we did over the Suez Canal. If we were an island the size of the White, such timidity would be intelligible, but the idea of a great country being invaded through a hole in the ground, twenty-seven miles long, seemed to me the most fantastic possible, while the practical use of the tunnel, both for trade and for tourists, was obvious. But now I saw that far more serious issues were at stake, for if we were held up by submarines, and if France was either neutral or our ally, we could land all the eastern portion of our supplies, which is not inconsiderable, at Marseille, and so run them safely to London without breaking bulk. When I put this forward in the press, some military critics said, but if the submarines could hold up the channel, they could hold up the Mediterranean also. This did not seem a good argument, because Germany was the possible enemy, and it had no port in the Mediterranean, while the radius of submarine action at that time was not great enough to allow them to come so far. So strongly did I feel about the need for a channel tunnel, in view of the coming war, that I remember writing three memoranda, and sending one to the army, one to the navy, and one to the Council of Imperial Defence. Of course I got no satisfaction of any kind, but Captain... Now General, Swinton, who was acting as secretary to the latter body, told me that he had read my paper, and that it had set him furiously thinking. I wrote to Lord Northcliffe also, without avail. I felt as if, like Solomon Eagle, I could go through London with a burning brazier on my head, if I could only get people to understand the need of the tunnel. The whole discussion had taken the utterly impossible and useless turn towards compulsory service, and the things which were practical and vital were being missed. I spoke in public about the tunnel when I could, and on one occasion, just a year before the war, I raised a discussion in the Times. Mr. Ronald McNeil giving me an opening by declaring in the House that the project was a crazy one. There was also about that time a meeting in the city at the Cannon Street Hotel, where a very influential body of men supported the scheme. My speech, as reported next day in the Times, in a very condensed form, ran thus. Sir A. Conan Doyle said there were possibilities in a future war that rendered it a matter of vital national importance that the tunnel should be constructed without delay. The danger was that we were getting five-sixths of our food supplies from abroad, and submarine craft were developing remarkable qualities which were not generally realised. They were able to avoid a blockade squadron and to pass under a patrol line of torpedo boats without their existence being even suspected. If they were sent to the line of our commerce and told to sink a ship, they would torpedo that ship for a certainty. What would be the condition of our food supplies if there were 25 hostile submarines off the Kent coast and 25 in the Irish Channel? 
The price of food would reach an almost prohibitive figure. The military correspondent of the Times was a great opponent of the Channel Tunnel and was always running it down and mocking at it. But the other day he wrote an article on the Mediterranean and forgetting the Channel Tunnel he said, we must remember that more than half the food supply of this country now comes from the Mediterranean. If it came through the Mediterranean and if it got to Marseille and we had the Channel Tunnel, it was only a matter of management to get it through to London. The military correspondent of the Times, who was presumably Colonel Reppington, had an article next day deriding the scheme and making light of my picture of submarines in the Channel. Well, we have lived to see them, and I wish my argument had proved less sound. Colonel Reppington has proved himself so clear-sighted an observer and commentator in the last war that he can be forgiven if, for once, he was on the wrong side. But if the Channel Tunnel had been put in hand at once after that meeting and rushed to completion, I wonder if it would be an exaggeration to say that a hundred million pounds would have been saved, while what it would have meant in evacuating wounded and in communications in stormy weather could not be represented in words. Imagine the convenience and saving of time and labour when munitions could be started at Woolwich and landed at Amiens without a break. It has been argued that if the tunnel had been built, the first swoop of the Germans would have brought them to the end of it, and it would have been destroyed. But this will not bear examination, for it is based on the idea that we should have left the end unprotected. It would, as a matter of fact, have been the most natural fortress in the world, and the strangest, for it would be the only fortress where you could increase or withdraw your garrison at will, and introduce any supplies at any time you might desire. A very few forts and trenches on those convenient chalk slopes with their wide, smooth fields of fire would hold the tunnel. In stretching their right wing as far as Amiens, the Germans were very nearly cut off, and it was by a very great effort that von Kluck saved it. If instead of Amiens he had reached Calais with sufficient forces for a siege, he would have been unable to get away. An argument based upon the supposition that we should leave the mouth of the tunnel in Picardy as unprotected as the mouth of a coal mine in Kent is surely an unsound one. Now, in 1924, they are talking of building the tunnel. I wonder what our descendants will think of the whole business, probably what we think of the men who oppose the Suez Canal. It is a most singular thing that our navy, with so many practical and clever men in it, with a genius like Winston Churchill at the head, and another genius like Lord Fisher, in continual touch, did not realise until faced with actual results some of the most important and surely most obvious points in connection with naval warfare. It came, I suppose, from the iron bonds of tradition, and that there were so many things to supervise, but the fact remains that a perfectly overwhelming case could be made out against the higher brain department of our senior service. A war with Germany was anticipated, and, as the public imagined, was prepared for, but save for the shipbuilding programme, which left us a narrow margin of safety, and for the concentration of our distant squadrons into British waters, and the elimination of many useless craft which consume good crews, what evidence is there of foresight? It was known, for example, that Scapa Flow and Cromarty were the two possible anchorages of the fleet in a long-distance blockade, and yet no attempt had been made to mount guns or to net the entrances, so that for months there was a possibility of a shattering disaster. Angelico, with the prudence which always distinguished him, had to put to sea every night lest his fleet should present a sitter, 
to a torpedo attack. We showed intelligence in sticking always to the heavier guns, but our mines were wretchedly inefficient. Our rangefinders were very inferior, and our shells proved to have less penetrating and explosive force. But the worst thing of all was the utter want of imagination shown in picturing the conditions of modern naval warfare, which must surely be done before just preparation can be made. It was clear that the effect of armour protection on one side and of the mine and the torpedo on the other would mean that if the ship floated there would be little loss of life but that she was very likely to sink, in which case the whole crew would go. Therefore provision must be made for the saving of everyone on board. The authorities, however, seemed to have completely underrated the dangers of the mine and torpedo and centred their attention upon the surface naval action where boats, being inflammable, would be a danger, and where in any case they would probably be shot to pieces before the end of the fight. The pre-war idea was to throw the boats and every other wooden object overboard before the action began. The very first day of naval warfare showed the importance of the mine, as on August 5th the Germans laid a minefield outside the mouth of the Thames, which nearly blew up their own returning ambassador, Prince Lichnowsky, and did actually cause the destruction of one of our light vessels, the Amphion. It was clear that one of the great dangers of the sea lay in this direction, and it soon became equally clear that nothing had been done to think out some defence. Foresight would have anticipated this situation, and would have set the brains of the younger naval officers at work, devising some remedy. As a matter of fact, the real solution had been roughly indicated by Colonel Reppington in Blackwood's magazine, some four years before, in which he spoke of a device called the otter, used by poachers for gathering up lines, and suggested that something of the sort would gather up the lines to which mines are attached. After three years of war and very many preventable losses, including the great battleship Audacious, the splendid auxiliary cruiser Laurentic, with six millions in gold on board, and many other fine vessels, the cure was found in the paravane, which was an adaptation of the otter. After its adoption, ships could cruise over a minefield with little fear of injury, and our squadrons were no longer confined to the narrow lanes which had been swept clear. I was from the beginning greatly impressed by this danger, and I wrote early in the war both to the papers and the Admiralty, but my device was crude and clumsy compared to what was actually done. My idea was something like a huge trident or toasting fork, which could be hauled up on the bows when the waters were safe, but could be pushed forward and dipped down in front when there was danger, so as to explode any mine before the ship could actually reach it. Such an apparatus would be better than nothing, but still I quite admit that it was an inadequate solution of the problem. But at least it was an attempt, and no other attempt was visible for years afterwards. But the particular instance of mines was a small consideration besides the huge, permanent, incredible fact that while it was clear that a battleship could suddenly go down like a kettle with a hole in it, dragging a thousand men down with it, there was no provision by which the lives of these men could be saved. It was really unbelievable until there came the terrible example when the three cruisers, Hogue, Abukir and Cressy, were all put down in a single day. A young German lieutenant with twenty men had caused us more loss than we suffered at Trafalgar. To learn how the hapless men had nowhere to turn, and how they clung on to floating petrol tins as their only safety, 
should have been terrible reading to those whose want of foresight had brought about such a situation. It was a dreadful object lesson, and there seemed no reason why it should not be often repeated. I had already commented in the press upon the situation which would arise in a general action, with ships sinking all round, and no boats. I suggested that it might be possible to drop the boats before battle, and to have them in tow of a steam launch, which could bring them up if needed. Of course I saw all the difficulties and dangers of such a course, but if one took the word of the sailors that the boats were a danger on board, then I could think of no other way of working it. When I wrote about it, several naval critics, notably Commander Jane, wrapped me hard over the knuckles, and deplored the intrusion of landsmen into matters of which they knew nothing. But when this great catastrophe occurred, I realised that the protection must be individual rather than collective, and that one must ventilate the thing in public with such warmth that the authorities would be compelled to do something. If wooden boats were impossible, what about india-rubber collars which would at least hold the poor fellows above the waves until some help could reach them? I opened an agitation in several papers, notably the Daily Mail and the Daily Chronicle, and within a very few days, either post-hoc or propter-hoc, there was a rush order for a quarter of a million collars which could be blown out by the men themselves, and which were henceforth to be part of their vital equipment. The Hampshire Telegraph, the best informed of naval papers, said, The Navy has to thank Sir Conan Doyle for the new life-saving apparatus the Admiralty are supplying. Some weeks ago he asked if it was not possible to manufacture a simple and easily inflatable life-belt, and, thanks to the enterprise of a rubber manufacturing firm, a swimming collar is now being supplied to the men of the fleet in the North Sea as fast as they can be turned out. The apparatus is exceedingly simple. It is made of rubber, enclosed in a stout web casing, and weighs complete under three ounces. It can be carried in the pocket and can be inflated in position round a man's neck in about ten seconds. Its effect is to keep the man's head above water indefinitely. There is little doubt that this swimming collar will result in the saving of many lives, and the Admiralty are to be congratulated upon the promptitude with which they have adopted the suggestion of Sir Conan Doyle. I was by no means satisfied with this, however, for however useful in calm water on a summer day, it was clear that men would soon perish by exhaustion in a rough winter sea, and the collars would only prolong their agony. If wooden boats took up too much room and were inflammable, how about India-rubber collapsible boats? I wrote in the Daily Mail, We can spare and replace the ships. We cannot spare the men. They must be saved, and this is how to save them. There is nothing so urgent as this. We can view all future disasters with equanimity if the ship's company has only a fair chance for its life. Of course one recognised that there were some situations where nothing would avail. The formidable, which was torpedoed near Plymouth on January the 1st, 1915, was a case in point. Captain Miller of the Brixham Trawler, which rescued 70 men, said to the Daily Mail representative that I was doing a national work in my efforts to get better life-saving appliances for the men of the Navy. He remarked that in calm weather collapsible boats would be of use, but they could not possibly have lived in the seas which were breaking over the formidable's whaler. The weather here was exceptional, and one cannot hope to provide for every case. The final result of the agitation was the provision of collars, 
of safety waistcoats and, as I believe, of a better supply of boats. I need hardly say that I never received a word of acknowledgement or thanks from the Admiralty. One is not likely to be thanked by a government department for supplementing its work. But it may be that some poor seaman struggling in the water sent me his good wish, and those are the thanks that I desired. There was nothing in the war which moved me more than the thought of the helpless plight of these gallant men who were sacrificed when they could so easily have been saved. Like every man with Irish blood in his veins, I was deeply moved by the tragedy of Ireland during the war. Her fine start, the want of tact with which it was met, her sad relapse, and finally her failure to rise to the great world crisis. A letter which I value very much is one which I received from Major William Redmond just before his lamented death. What an abyss of evil Ireland would have been saved from had the spirit of this letter been the inspiration upon which she acted. 1812-1916 Dear Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, It was very good of you to write to me, and I value very much the expression of your opinion. There are a great many Irishmen today who feel that out of this war we should try and build up a new island. The trouble is, men are so timid about meeting each other halfway. It would be a fine memorial to the men who have died so splendidly if we could over their graves build up a bridge between the north and south. I have been thinking a lot about this lately in France. No one could help doing so when one finds that the two sections from Ireland are actually side by side holding the trenches. No words, not even your own, could do justice to the splendid action of the new Irish soldiers. They never have flinched. They never give trouble, and they are steady and sober. Had poor Kettle lived, he would have given the world a wonderful account of things out there. I saw a good deal of Kettle, and we had many talks of the unity we both hoped would come out of the war. I have been an extreme nationalist all my life, and if others as extreme, perhaps on the other side, will only come halfway, then I believe impossible as it may seem, we should be able to hit upon a plan to satisfy the Irish sentiment and the imperial sentiment at one and the same time. I am sure you can do very much, as you already have done, in this direction. I am going back for Christmas with the men I have become attached very deeply to during the last two years. With many thanks for your letter. Yours very truly, William Redmond, Major. If this letter even now were posted up by the Free State and Northern governments at every crossroads of Ireland, the spirit of Willie Redmond might heal the wounds of the unhappy country. End of chapter 26